Um, we, we are starting a three-part series, uh, and I can only say that I, I hope I can keep it to three parts, uh, which is going to be about the, the power of rabbinic legislation or the power of the court. In Hebrew, we would probably call it koach beitin, but that doesn't really speak to the issue, because when we think of beitin, we think of a specific setting of sages sitting in judgment, and we're talking about the beitin in the abstract, the platonic beitin, if you will. Uh, and so the way I titled the series is the purview of Rabbanan, both interpretive as well as applicative and supersessive. Yes, that's a real word, supersessive. And it relates to the idea of superseding and the ability of rabbinic law to supersede uh, Torah law. Now, by, by need, the scope of what we're doing is going to be relatively limited. And when I say relatively limited, I mean relative to the different cases and nuances and wrinkles that we could discuss, it will be limited, but it's not going to be limited. Uh, there's a lot for us to look at, and I'm going to do this in um, in as reasonable a schematic as possible so that we can uh, engage in looking at the phenomenon of rabbinic power uh, in, um, in a reasonable order. Uh, and we'll start before even getting into the, into the text, into the sources, uh, with just what the a priori approach that we typically take when, when addressing the issue, and I'll demonstrate why, if that is the approach that we take, it's, it's wrongheaded. Uh, what we think of is that there is Torah law, Doraita, mandated by God explicitly, or mandated by God explicitly through an oral tradition, if you will. And then there's the rabbinic mandate to expand it, promote it, and to, um, and to protect it. Uh, and if you think about it, rabbinic legislation, which we're not dealing with in this series, rabbinic legislation in the sense of laws that are considered derabanan serve essentially two functions. They are either there to protect the law. So for instance, all the prohibitions under the, under the rubric of Shvut on Shabbat and Yom Tov, not riding a horse, not uh, swimming in a river, et cetera, are there to protect the law, uh, as well as uh, countless other examples, uh, sitting on a shot in his blanket for, for fear lest a piece of it will, uh, will roll up and be on top of you and keep you warmth, et cetera. These are all, and, and there's thousands, without exaggeration, thousands of examples of this. These are rabbinic protections of the law. Uh, that's one area. There's also rabbinic promotion of what we might loosely call Torah values. And I, I say loosely because in contemporary terms, Torah values refers to something very different, which is very important. Uh, and it's sort of the rock bottom um, um, uh, approaches uh, that we are trying to internalize in our, in our life and in our mind uh, in accordance with what the Torah wants of us. Um, that involves how we look at God, how we look at the world, how we look at our family, how we look at each other, et cetera, and we look at ourselves. I don't mean that, but the Torah has a particular value. For instance, the Torah has a value of, and we looked at this recently, of thanking God um, and being and demonstrating gratitude. And so the rabbis uh, add in all sorts of ways in which we can promote that, like when Hanukkah happened, they, in, they institute a holiday and the mitzvah of Hanukkah, et cetera. I'm not talking about those things. Those are all 
glot de Rabbanan. They're all simply straight de Rabbanan, and we're not looking at that in this series. What we're looking at is the way that, and that's, again, what we typically think of when we think of the Rabbanan, we think of them operating within the scope and beyond the scope of Torah law, but not inside the scope of Torah law. And we're going to look at inside the scope of Torah law. And so that's why I titled it um, Interpretive, Applicative, and Supersessive, meaning their, uh, their power, and by the way, not just their power and ability, but also their mandate, to interpret the Torah, to apply the law of the Torah, and even to supersede or uproot, as we've been seeing in our sugya. And the starting point for this whole discussion is something that we'll get to in today's shir. Today's shir is really going to be a broad introduction, and then we're going to get our feet wet into the thorniest sugya of hafka'ah, of uprooting along the Torah. Next week, we're going to spend all of our time in that sugya because it's way more intricate than it seems, uh, and with a lot of fun twists and turns. And then the third one will, will be to address several other related issues. The entire topic begins in a parasha in Sefer Dvarim. And that parasha, which is near the beginning of what we call parasha or Seder Shoftim, reads as follows. Uh, you have it in front of you, source number one. If something becomes too wondrous for you in a case of law, loosely we might describe this as in any area of law, or if there are quarrels, meaning there is a, an interpersonal uh, uh, litigation, and you don't know what to do. So that means that, by the way, this is now not addressed to the common man. This is addressed to the leadership. Here, you're the leadership in a particular town, and you're presented with a law, and you don't know what to do about it. You get up and go. You go to the place where God selects. And by the way, that's a theme that starts this is Parakid Zion. Starts in Parakid Bet, the beginning of Re'e, and continues throughout the Neumah Mitzvot, throughout the mitzvah speech of Moshe to the very end, the place where God chooses. We heard it several times uh, on Second Yom Tov uh, yesterday, uh, the place where God cho chooses to have his name reside. And in our terms, that is Harabayit. But in the terms of the Torah, it's still left unknown. And uh, for a time, that was perhaps Shiloh. You will come to the because remember the Kohanic function in the in Sefer Dvarim is to serve not only as the ritual uh, agents in the Mikdash, but perhaps even chiefly to be the teachers and the instructors of Torah and the members of the court. So you're going to come to them. And you will seek, meaning you're going to ask them, and they'll tell you what the law is. So in other words, there's a central authority, and when there is confusion, there is dispute, there is ignorance. Ignorance meaning we don't know what to do, we don't have a tradition on it, we're not sure what the law is. You go to that central court, and they'll tell you what to do. And now, the command. You must now do, based on the word that they tell you, from that place, that God chooses, you must guard to do exactly what they tell you, which means the Torah is giving a mandate to rabbinic ruling. Now, to be fair, we haven't yet really touched on our topic because this sounds like it's an area that the Torah did not cover, and you don't have a tradition, a, a judicial tradition on what to do. 
And therefore you don't know, and therefore you go and they will tell you, which means it's their job to now present rabbinic rulings on areas that are gray areas of the law or uncharted areas of the law, sounds like. And now, based on the instruction that they give you, and the law that they tell you, that's what you're supposed to do. So the Torah now is commanding you to do what they said. And famously, this is the source that, uh, that the rabbis, that some of the rabbis bring for why we can say a bracha on doing a mitzvah de Rabbanan, ner Hanukkah. How do we, why do we say bracha ner Hanukkah? Because the Torah told us that we're supposed to follow the rabbis and the way the Rambam sort of paraphrases it in Hilchot Hanukkah, he says, as if to say, Baruch Hashem al-Kirim it's kind of a long bracha. We don't say that. But that God commanded us to follow the rabbis who told us to light near Hanukkah. That's shiur ha hege. That's what it, the, the, the full meaning of what it is. Small, do not deviate from what they tell you, not to the right, not to the left. The assumption here is that the right and the left may mean more restrictive and more uh, liberal, maybe. Um, uh, on the other hand, it just may mean stay the stay the path and don't deviate from it. Uh, famously, Herman Wuk, once gave a talk in YU and said that the entire Kane mutiny was based on the Rashiana's Pasuk. So just fun with that. Okay. Now this is going to be more critical than we think. A person who acts willfully, and to and willfully disregards and acts against what that ruling is, he has to be killed. This is a rule that we refer to in Masachat Sanhedrin as Zaken Mamre, rebellious elder, meaning a member of the Beitin who does not follow, and not follow seems to mean that he also instructs others to do differently than the ruling of the court. Everybody will hear this, they'll see what's going on, and they will no longer be willful against the court because they'll see the consequences of that. Okay, that's the parsha of Beit Din HaGadol. There'll be here and there several other psukim that we're going to see, but we're going to mainly, mainly be in rabbinic literature over the course of this series. Now, before going ahead, we have to see the Sifri on this passage. Again, a reminder, the Sifri, or more properly, the Sifrei, and the fully Sifrei Devei Rav, um, literally means the books of the school of Rav. That's a really vague title. So let me clarify what it means. Um, there are collections that we have of the Midrash Tanaim, the Midrashim of the Chachamim of the era of the Mishnah. And there were chiefly two schools. There may have been exclusively two schools of Midrashic uh, approach to the text. Uh, the school of famously of Rabbi Ishmael, which we all know because Every morning in Davini, we recite Rabbi Ishmael's rules for Midrashic interpretation, which those three don't have to write Midrashet. And um, the opposite, his opposite number was Rabbi Akiva, who had a different set of rules and a different approach, a different Midrashic approach. We've seen that numerous times. Uh, just recently, we talked about Rabbi Akiva, Darish Vavi, he darshans every Vav, Rabbi Akiva darshans every word et. Right, Rabbi Shua was more of the approach that he brought Torah to Shomen Adam. The Torah uses regular rhetoric, so don't get bent out of shape about an extra letter, etc. That's the that's not even touching the tip of the iceberg of the difference between them, but to do different schools. We have um, midrashim 
of the schools of Rabbi Akiva and of the schools of Rabbi Ishmael on the four halachic books of Torah. I mean, we do not have one on Bereshit. We have every reason to think that one was not composed on Bereshit. Uh, and we have one on part of Shemot, because much of Shemot is narrative. But we have the fullest one is on Vayikra. And then we have another one that's on Bamibar and one on Dvarim. The one that we refer to, the one on Shemot as the Mechilta, and we have two of them, Mechilta de Rabbi Shmael, that's from the school of Rabbi Shmael, and Mechilta de Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, which was really discovered in the end 19th century, or rediscovered in the 19th century, but it was pieced together because it was quoted widely by Rishonim, but for a long time we didn't have access to it. And the Mechilta of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, as you could tell by the name, was of the school of Rabbi Kiva, his Rebbe. Um, and then we have famously the Sifra. Sifra means the book. And that is the Midrash on, on Vayikra, which is otherwise known as Torah Kohanim. And when I say Midrash, I'm using the, the word carefully because we typically refer to this whole set as Midrash Halacha. But it's a little bit of a misleading name because in all of these books, there are also Midrashim that are not Halachic. And one example that you all know, that we all know, is. Rabbi Akiva's famous Midrash in Torah Kohanim, on the Pasuk Ve'ahavta, the Re'ach HaKamocha, what does Rabbi Akiva famously say? If you don't know it, remember the song, Zeh Klal Gadol Ba Torah, which by the way is not a halachic statement, it's an agadic statement. And there are numerous other agadic statements in this Midrashim, so we prefer really to call it Midrash HaTanaim. So the Midrash of the, and these were collated evidently in the school of Rav, that means the beginning of the third century in Babel, and therefore, the Sifra, which is the, the uh, Torah Kohanim, is fully called Sifra de Veirav. And the other two Midrashim, Midrashic collections on Bamidbar and then on Devarim are called Sifrei. Sifrei means the other books. Sifra is the book and Sifrei is the other books. So because Torah Kohanim was considered the biggest, most important one, most central one, Sifrei is also very important. The Sifre that we have, the broad one that we have on Bamibar is from the school of Rabbi Ishmael, and the Sifre that we have on Dvarim is from the school of Rabbi Akiva. Interestingly enough, in recent times, we have unearthed at least parts of a Midrash Tanaim of Bamibar from the school of Rabbi Akiva. More importantly, a Midrash Dvarim Zuta, Sifre Zuta, on Dvarim, which is from the other school. So we're, we're, the picture continues to broaden out and fill out, which is beautiful. All right, all of that introduction, because it's important to know what we're looking at. We're looking at the Sifre in Dvarim on our Parsha. And the Sifre, like a classic comprehensive Midrash, comprehensive Midrash meaning it's going line by line, is will give us the line in the text and then the Midrash. And what I did here is kept the line in the text in the Koran font and then the Midrash in another font so we can see the difference. The Sifre says as follows, right? which means, Notice that the focus of the Midrash here is for what kind of violation of rabbinic instruction can you be liable for the death penalty? Only for the instruction of the Beitin HaGadol Shebirushalayim, meaning the central Beitin that sits in the offices on Harabait, in the Azarab. So in their times, of course, the central Beitin was in Yavne. This is Rabbi Kiva's time. Was in Yavne. If the Beitin in Yavne 
gathers and they declare that the following is the case, halacha, and you as a member of the, of the court defy it and teach differently and have the people in your town do differently, you are not chayav mitah. The chayuv mitah emanates from you uh, dissenting from the majority ruling as a member of the court from a ruling issued in the Beit Din at the Beit HaMikdash and not Yavne. Okay. And that's why I mentioned that the whole thing of the liability uh, for dissension and the consequence for it is central to the study. You'll see, you'll see it here. Now, what does that mean? And this is where our topic really gets built. It's only for words of Torah that you're chayav mita, meaning it's only in the interpretation and application of Torah law, where if you dissent, you could be chayav mita. The Mishnah, I didn't bring all of these sources, but the Mishnah in Sanhedrin gives us an example. If an elder on the court dissents and says, there are five or three parshiot in tefillin, shalrosh, as opposed to four, then he's chayav mita, because that's a Torah law, and they're defining the Torah law, and he's dissenting from the court's ruling about that. If, on the other hand, he comes and says, there is no mitzvah tefillin, he's not chayav mita, he's just talking silly. Right, and on the other hand, if he comes into sense and says uh, that you're not supposed to light candles on Hanukkah, you're supposed to light Hanukkah candles during the day, or whatever, he's not chayav mita because that's not a Torah law that's being discussed. The reason I'm bringing this to your attention is you see that the rabbis themselves are contending with Torah law that it's their job to define, which again is different than the a priori assumption that anybody seeing the title of the shiur or know what we're talking about, would think. Everybody thinks we're, we're discussing rabbinic law. And the rabbinic law that's, again, protective and promotive of the Torah, we're not talking about that. We're talking about the rabbi's involvement in Torah law itself. And it's only for that that this parsha exists. Right? So now, which, by the way, means that the application of this pasuk to the bracha, Ner Hanukkah, comes from a different perspective. It, doesn't, it really works with this perspective. Now, you must do what they tell you. So saying there's a mitzvah say from the Torah to follow what the rabbis say about Torah law. You may not deviate from what they tell you to the right or the left. That is a lotase, which means that if the rabbis define the Torah law as being X and you do differently, You've both ignored a mitzvah say to follow them, and you violated a lot say by deviating from them. And the last two words in that pasuk, yamin small, is afilu marim be'inecha al small shu yamin ba yamin shu small. Now, this wording is a little different than Rashi. I mentioned Herman Wuk's chap, uh, an observation about the cane mutiny. Rashi quotes the Sifri, but the Sifri is a little different than Rashi quotes it. Rashi says, even if they tell you that right is left and left is right, you got to do what they tell you. In other words, you have to absolutely surrender your own awareness and understanding to the, to the Beit Din. Now, by the way, who is you? You is a member of the Beit Din, which means you have to surrender your uh, approach and your observation and your final decision, not your thinking, but your final decision to the will of the majority of your colleagues. But notice the Sifri doesn't say it that way. Rashi says, even if they tell you that right is left and left is right, the, the Sifri says it much more nuanced than that. Even if it seems to you, I'll small show you mean value means you small. 
Meaning you in your own limited, because every one of us has limited awareness. And that's why we meet in a big group to listen to others and have our awareness expanded and see things from a different perspective. So even if from your own perspective, it seems they got it backwards, you still have to listen to them. And you can't go off bullheaded and say, I know the truth. I'm the only one. Those other 70 guys don't know what they're talking about. Right. And I'm going to continue to rule as I did. That's the guy who's liable here. Okay. But again, notice this is all within the context of Torah law. So now I'd like to address, and again, schematically, those er and, and hierarchically, those areas of rabbinic impact on Torah law. And again, we're staying away from rabbinic law. By rabbinic law, what I mean is what we classically call the Rabbanan or Divrei Sofrim, things that the rabbis created either independently or as an extension and a protection of Torah law. I'm not addressing that at all. So I've... I've um, uh, categorized them into different groups. The names are my own, so please don't blame anybody else. Um, and they were just in a fit of creative uh, craziness. But one area is interpretive, right? Which means the rabbis have the mandate, the mandate, not just the right, the mandate to interpret the words of the Torah so that we can do them properly. And let me give you one example among and I kid you not, among thousands. I'm not exaggerating. But one example that's just a real easy one for us to address, right? Let me start by asking you a question because it's very recent in our mind because the last two days here in Chutzlaretz, we had Yom Tov. Now, what are you obligated to do once during the day and once during the night on each day of Yom Tov? Each day of Yom Tov. What do you have to do? What did you have to do Saturday night? Or what do you have to do Sunday during the day? What do you, mean? Kiddush. you had to have Kiddush before doing what? Meal. Having a meal, right. You have an obligation of Seuda. Good. And then when you, and what does that Seuda have to include? Besides meat, because of some Chat Yom Tov, what else does that have to include? Bread. Hmm? Bread. 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 Exactly. Good. Wine. Wine, good. Okay, excellent. These all sounds like great choices. Now, bread is the one I want to focus on, because, although the others are true. You have to have bread. Why do you have to have bread? Because bread defines a Sudan. We'll talk about that in a minute, in a few minutes. After you're done with the meal, what are you obligated to do? From the Torah. Bench. You have to say, you have to thank God. Exactly. So Sherwin's quoting Pasuk Yod in front of us from source three. Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, no, don't be sorry. You're quoting the Pasuk. It's great. From Parshat Ekev. Right. Now let's look at that pasuk, and I'm going to come back to Yontif in a minute. Uh, as, okay. Again, I'm bringing you your land. The land is filled with all sorts of great things and wheat and barley, etc. And you will eat and be satisfied, and you will bless Hashem for the good land that He gave you. That's a mitzvah from the Torah. No, no question. There is every one of the monei mitzvot counts for Katamazon as a mitzvah from the Torah. It's right there. Okay. Now. What does the Torah say? When you eat, the Savata, and you're satisfied, then you must bless Hashem. What constitutes eating? The answer is it doesn't say. It does not say. So now, you um, have a bowl of cherries. You have to say Berkat Mazon. You, you completely demolish a whole bag of potato chips. You have to say Berkat Mazon. 
You have a small sandwich. You have to save your karnamazon. If yep. you're sovea, if you're sovea, whatever that means. Yeah, but nonetheless, we limit it to bread, <clears> right? <throat> and I said before, the whole idea that the meal has to include bread is also something like mapiton. Meat I get because ain't simchal of a basar. It's supposed to be happy, and happiness is in, involves basar and yayin. Is it basar kodshim? Is it not basar kodshim? Interesting question. But mapiton bread, why bread? Right, good. So now let's take a look because we're going to start from Birkata Mazon. We're going to come back because once we define what you have to say, Birkata Mazon, um, that's going to then define what constitutes a meal. Watch the Mishnah in Masachet Brachot. The Mishnah here at the end of the sixth parak of Brachot says the following Source four. Let's say you ate fruit of the seven species. Rabban Gamliel says, you have to say what we call Berkatamazon after grapes or pomegranates or figs or dates or olives. But you have to say, you have to say Chachamim say it's one bracha. In some of the versions of the Mishnah, it says bracha achat me'in shalosh. One bracha that is a summary of all three brachot. We call that alamichia. The bracha we say after cake and cookies and wine, etc. Alamichia. But Ramagamliel's opinion is that you have to say Birkata Mazon after those things, which means there is no clear instruction from Sinai as to what constitutes the Savata. If there were, there wouldn't be Ramagamliel. I'm picking up on the Rambam's line, famous line in his introduction to Perusha Mishnah, which is called Davar Shuhum Mishum Kabbalah in Bomachlokat Leolam. Anything that is a tradition of Sinai, there's never Machlokat about it. Nobody in the world ever thought that an etrog is anything but an etrog. Because there's a halachal Sinai. Right? That we have a tradition. But so clearly there's not a tradition on what constitutes v'achaltav savat over achta, because here you have machloket between Ramgamliel and the chachamim as to, and it's going to get even juicier in a minute, sorry for the pun, um, as to what constitutes a meal that you have to say berkat afterwards. And then Rabbi Akiva says the following, afilu she'achal shelek. Even if you just had a boiled vegetable, whom is on But that's your meal. You have to bench. Now we rule like chachamim, but that means that we've got a range of opinions out there in the rabbinic world of Yadna as to whether what constitutes a meal, and therefore at what point you have to say Now, by the way, I want you to see what's happening. The Torah obligates us to say berkatamazon. And the rabbis are determining what things generate the need for Birkat Amazon. Now, just to add to that, the rabbis also added in the following rule, which is on special days, you're obligated to mention the special nature of the day. And therefore, on Shabbat, you have to mention Shabbat. On Yom Tov, you have to mention Yom Tov. And now, what happens if you eat a meal on Yom Tov and you say Birkat HaMazon and omit, we'll just charitably say omit by haste or not intentionally, you omit, what happens? What's the halacha? The halacha is you have to bench again. You didn't bench. Now, note, I want you to see what this is. Torah says, the Torah doesn't tell us over what kind of food. The Torah doesn't tell us what words to use. As far as the Torah is concerned, it sounds like anytime you have something that makes you feel good, you're supposed to turn around and say, thank you, God. Thank you, God, for the land and for the food. That'll be it. But the rabbis give us a whole formula, three brachot, four brachot, 
and different components that have to be added in. And some of those components are sine qua non, which means if you left them out, you didn't bench. Now notice that this is the, the most unintrusive level of rabbinic legislation because it's purely interpretive, meaning the Torah didn't say X and the rabbi said not X, the Torah just didn't give us a letter. And the rabbis provide that letter and say, here's what means. Ramagamiel says A, Rekiva says A plus, and Chachamim say no, only B. And that becomes the halacha. So that if you eat a boiled vegetable and that's all you have for dinner, you do not save your katamazon in spite of Rabbi And if you have a bowl of dates, you don't save your katamazon in spite of Ramagamiel. You have a sandwich, you save your katamazon. That's halacha Chachamim. But notice, they're interpreting what the Torah says. Now, I'll add to that with the following. If you take a look at the Tosefta in Brachot, a famous piece, Berchata Zimun Min HaTorah. It may actually mean Berchata Mazon, but Shinemar Berchata V'savat Rachta. There the Torah says, Berchata V'savat Rachta, Zu Berchata Zimun. That's referring to Zimun, which we call Yishet. Uh, how do you call it? Et Adonai Racha in the Pasuk, Zu Bracha Rishonah. That's the Bracha we say when we praise God for feeding the world. Al Ha'aretz, the next part of the Pasuk, Zuberchat Ha'aretz. That's the central Brachat Berchat Ha'amazon, Nodelacha. Then Hatova Zu Yerushalayim. Shema Hatova Zer Galvanon, Yerushalayim is alluded to as Tov. Ha'aretz Hatova, Tova is referring to Yerushalayim. Ashenatam Lacha Zer Tov Metiv, which means according to this Tosefta, five Brachot are mandated by the Torah. Zimun, Hazan, Al Ha'aretz, Yerushalayim, and Hatova Metiv, all alluded to in the Pasuk. By the way, in practice, what do you do when you're eating alone? Well, you don't say zimun. So that means that we now have rabbinic interpretation, which is saying what the Torah told us as far as birkat hamazon applies one way when you're eating with a group that eats together, applies differently when you're eating alone. Second of all, how, what is the other opinion about the fourth bracha, the last one, hatovah mitiv, right? Which is that it's the Rabbanan and was established in Yavne, after the, the, the fallout of, the, of Bar Kochba, right? And now the Mechilta, Mechilta, I'm going to introduce you to Midrashet Tanim, Mechilta de Bishwal, Minayin Shein, Mivachin Al-Razon, how do you say, how do you know you say Bracha and food? From Mechilta V'savata V'rachta, Zubracha V'shana, Aret Zubracha Shniya, Tova Zubu Shalayim, Hashan Atan Lecha, Zikimalan Ukol Tov. Okay, very nice. And now the creme de la creme on this which is, the Torah says Birkat HaMazon. So far, we don't know what kind of food's obligated. We don't know, by the way, I'm not even going to touch on this because this is yet another detail, how much of that food uh, obligates it. We don't know anything about adding in special things for special days. We don't even know from the Torah what it is you're supposed to say. And then we have a Midrash that says, ooh, that refers to the first bracha. Al ha'aretz, that's berchat ha'aretz. Hatova is berchat Yerushalayim. And suddenly we find the makeup of berchat ha'amazon emerging to the point where we say either three or four of the brachot, we say three, of the brachot of berchat ha'amazon are de'oraita. By the way, that has profound halachic implications. It means if you ate a meal, and then people came over, this happens on Yatav all the time, you eat a meal, and you're sitting there and people come over and then some people are uncomfortable. So you pick up and you go outside because they don't want to be inside because of COVID and you're schmoozing with them outside and then you come back and it's been 45 minutes and you don't remember, did I bench or not? What do you do? 
What do you do? You bench. Use your bench. Why? Doraita. The benching is Doraita. Suffolk Doraita. Right? And Suffolk home run after bench. But what is it that I'm doing? I'm saying words that are rabbinic words on a meal that the rabbis defined as being a, a meal that obligates me. By the way, within a time frame that the rabbis established for being still within the time frame of the meal. Right? And so the last thing I'm going to I want to show you is the following. A famous statement of Rabbi Nachman that's in the seventh paragraph of Rabbi Nachman. According to this, when the man started falling down, Moshe established, or probably means composed, the bracha hazanetavolam kulobetivo. So the Bnei Israel had a text in which to thank God, which, by the way, means that in Moshe's time, sounds like they only said one bracha hazanetakol. Yoshua tikein Yoshua then composed a bracha that ends with Allah Aretz Olazon when they entered the land. That means, by the way, until the time of Shlomo, Rekhatan Olazon is still in its infancy and not developed. Maybe. And by the way, some of the Rishonim point out, the Rav Yoh here points out that in Shlomo's time, they didn't say Uvnei Yerushalayim either. Obviously not. Right? Just like in Shlomo's time, they didn't say Hamachazir Shechinatolitzion because Shechin has a left. We're here. So the wording is different. And then Atov the famous thing about Atov But the point is here that as you see in this very small selection about one area of halacha, the Torah mandates us to do something, and it's the rabbi's mandate, not just right, mandate to interpret and give the parameters of how to do this mitzvah from the Torah. And by the way, if you think about it, it's absolutely necessary. There is no way that we could exist without it. And we certainly could not exist with a trans-temporal and trans-geographical, an omniversal, if you will, community, which we are. We are a community in South Africa and in England and in Israel and in Beverly Wood and in, and in the former Soviet Union. We are a community everywhere. And we are a community of 2,000 years ago and 2,000 years from now. And we all know how to say Berkat Amazon because the rabbis helped define it. So they took the law of the Torah and they helped define under what circumstances you said, what does it have to include, what do you do when there's a small group there? How do you how do you say Bekanamazon differently? What happens if you forget, etc.? Right? And that's again one of, without exaggeration, thousands of examples of laws in the Torah that need to be fleshed out and clarified and defined by the rabbis. But then again, that is, like I said, the most unobtrusive um, um, component of rabbinic legislation in the Torah law because the Torah left it open and it's the rabbi's job to, to interpret. Now, going back to our opening passage, what happens if somebody's on the Beit Din and says, okay, Berkat Amazon uh, includes two brachot and everybody else in the Beit Din says Berkat Amazon includes three brachot. And now this guy goes out and teaches in his community, I'm teaching you, my friends all, they don't know what they're talking about. It's only two brachot. You thank God for the food and thank God for the land. That's it. Then according to this, he's Chayav Mita because he is dissenting from his colleagues of the Beit Din Agadol in the, in the application interpretation of Torah law. 
Okay, let's move to the next example, which heightens the tension, all right? Heightens the tension, although it's not all that dissimilar from what we just saw. And that is the following. The Torah says, I'm just, again, one, every, one, every example here is one of certainly hundreds in every category. And you think about it, any legal system absolutely rides on this. And after a pasuk about two different things applying to parents. If you either strike your parents or curse your parents, there's the death penalty. Okay, fine. So far, no big surprise. The Gemara in Chulin in the, uh, in the first parak is the essential sugya of Rove. How we know that a majority is a determinant. What do I mean by determinant? I mean, when I do not know what the status of something is, majority will often help determine that status. And so, for instance, famously, the Mishnah in, uh, in Tarot, you find some meat on the street, and there are 10 butcher shops on that street. None of them are kosher. The meat is not marked. Halacha is the meat's kosher. Right? Based on a road. Now, Here's a, a much more uh, implicative and far-reaching example. The Gemara in Hulan goes on for quite a while trying to prove from precedent that Rove is a determinant. And here we go. Menaha milta Where is this notion that the rabbis like to say, which is follow the Rove? The answer is because the Torah says follow the majority. Now that's a little different. Following the majority there refers to following the majority of members of a court. But there's a principle there that the majority helps determine reality. Now it's of course very different. That's majority opinions help determine what the law is, not majority cases help determine the reality. By the way, I want just in Yavamot, think about how much that's, a, that's an issue. All right, a girl is, uh, is 12 years old. Right? And she gets betrothed to a guy at 12. A lot of times that was normal. She hasn't developed yet at all. She's 12, but she gets betrothed. And now the fellow who betrothed her died, didn't even marry her, died. And what happens? She falls to. Who does she fall to? Somebody help me out. We're doing a vomit. Who does she fall to? Well, she can opt out. No, she can't opt out. She, she was brother. up by her father. The brother. brother. She falls brother. to a brother, to the brothers, right? Okay. Now, the brother is looking at this girl and saying, on the one hand, she's my dead brother's wife. I have an obligation of evil. On the other hand, she may turn out to be a what? Islandist. Islandist. And if she's an islandist, then what will happen if I do evil with her? I'm going to be violating the heir of Ameshach. And that's, that's huge. By the way, what's the percentage of Ilonyot in the population? What do you think? Exactly. Right? Zero, zero, zero. Exactly, right? <laughs> so what do we do in practice? We do evil. Why? There's rove. Overwhelming rove. And there's only one famous rabbi who says we don't, and that is Rabbi Meir de Chayish Lemihuta. Right? Rabbi Meir says we have to wait until she grows up to demonstrate she's not an island. Right? Yeah, the thing with the, with the Kiddush Ektan, et cetera. Okay, now, the Gemara, so I want to show you this case. What's the source for the rabbinic dictum that we follow Rove? And we said, 
So he said, Ruba deita kaman. We're not asking the question when the rove involves items that are all available to us. Kigon, meaning there's 10 stores, nine are kosher. We have all the information in front of us. We see this piece of meat. We say, okay, it follows the rove. The Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin is, again, you have 71 people, 45 vote one way, and the other 26 vote the other way. Good, that's easy. The rove is in front of you. Lokai Bayon, we're not asking about that. What are we asking about? Ruva deleta kaman. Ruva deleta kaman means a rove where the information is not available to us, meaning it's a statistical rove, not a visible rove. And that, of course, affects our issue of irony. How do we know that a katan is not going to turn out to be a saris? Okay. So the Gemara gives a whole bunch of suggestions from precedent to demonstrate rove. And there's one I want to show you among the many, because they all, by the way, they all speak to our issue. Of Maria He says, we get it from here. If you strike your father, there's a death penalty. The Torah said, somebody like that is killed. Why, how can we kill this kid? Who says that's his father? See the problem? Who says that that guy, Bobby, 15 years old, hit Sammy, who's 35 years old? Who says that Sammy is Bobby's father? By the way, no, they don't ask about the mom because we know who the mom is. We don't know who the father is. How, and the Torah says to kill the kid, which means there's a death penalty, the Torah sanctions, for a case that the Torah understands nobody could know if this is really a real kid. And we're not going to kill somebody based on probably. And the answer is, We follow Rove, and watch this, meaning even if the mom, at the time, nine months before that kid came out of her, was having an affair, even so, most of her, intera- her sexual interactions would be with her husband. Now, of course, that can be challenged in its own right, case by case. And of course, you have a guy who's overseas for two years, and two years later, his wife gives birth, you know, that raises a lot of different kind of eyebrows. We're not talking about that. And we're also not talking about the opposite case, which the Gemara then plays with, which is when the two of them were in seclusion away from all other people for the entire time, where there's no question that he's the father, because we're not into the immaculate conception idea. Right. Um, And so... But the Gemara here maintains, how do we know that any child is the son of his purported father based on Rove? Now notice what happens. The rabbis have established that there is a halachic determinant of safek known as Rove. We have other determinants like Chazaka and Eidechad and also the other determinants. We're dealing with Eidechad right now in the Gemara. And then one determinant, which may be the most powerful one, is Rov. And Rov is dealt with all over Shas, in Momonot and in Isurim and, and, and Babakam and Bavakam, all over. Right? And that applica- the application of Rov now cuts down all the way to the death penalty, which means we're going to actually kill somebody based on Rov. Which means, by the way, that the rabbis have extended their power, not only to defining what a mitzvah is, 
but to determining reality, which imp impacts on halakhic issues. Now we're going to take one other example, and this is not necessarily in in increasing severity, but it's an increasing um, engagement and involvement, and that's definitional. The rabbi's purview is definitional. By the way, um, forget about the case we're going to look at in a minute. We'll look at it, but before that, just a simple thing: a kid who's about thirteen years old. Um, um, gives a girl these every generation of the stories that's happening, right? I'm not I'm sure you know these uh, these stories. A kid who's 13 years old is playing around at camp, and 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 his brother was learning condition with him, and he's got a girl that he likes or the girl he wants to play a trick on, and he takes uh, some uh, candy from Shechem from the from the uh, from the canteen and comes to a girl in front of a bunch of guys and says, "Hurry up, right? Now we know stories. I remember the story with Ramosha and, and the girl had to get a get and she couldn't marry a client. It's like, really, you know, don't mess around with this stuff. Now, the kid is 13 years old. He gives a girl something of value and the girl herself is, let's say, 13. So, right. And the girl, and the girl, or the girl's 12, let's say, and the guy gives the girl this thing in front of two counselors who are horrified, but don't step in in the middle. And the guy gives it to her and says, and she accepts it and she smiles and takes a bite out of the candy bar, de demonstrating her acceptance of his marriage. Uh, what's their status? What's their status? Are they married? Or are they just a couple of, of wild kids? What story? Bill, what's the answer? It depends. Yeah, what does it depend on? I always look to Bill for that. What does it depend on? <laughs> What does it depend on? It depends on whether he and she were both B'nai Dot. Now, what determines if they are of compass mentis? So the rabbis have an entire system in the Mishnayot and Nida about simanim that demonstrate majority. Now, for most things, we just rely on a boy by the time he's 13 already has simanim, because everything we do in that is drabanan. A minion from, for davening. Okay, he's 13, we count him. But this is a huge all right the thing with implications that are staggering. Here we have a, a little girl in middle school who's now married. It's wacko. So we got to get to the bottom of this. We certainly hope that they're not married. We certainly hope that this is Kinderspiel. How do we how do we find out? We have to see if the if he has simanim, she has simanim. Can we say um, that we can nullify the vow? We can't, it's not a vow, it's Kedusha. We can't nullify it. Hmm. Right. We're going to get into that next week. Afghino is like the main topic of next week. But for right now, what's the status? And the answer is it depends. Now, by the way, who determined what Simanim are? It's all Durabanan. I mean, not Durabanan in the sense of that, that it's quote unquote only Durabanan, meaning it's rabbinic legislation that identifies what a Siman is, and therefore, whether this kid is is uh, is married, and more critically, this girl's an Asian Ish, which means when they forget about it, and they leave camp, and they forgot about the whole story, and then when she's 21, she's going out with a guy, and the guy poses to her, and then they're talking about it, and suddenly she realizes she might be married to a guy who she hasn't seen in 10 years since camp. The, imp the implications are staggering. And they all depend on a determination that's rabbinic. So let me give you another example, which is milder than that and won't get us like, you know, crazy and wondering what's happening at camp. In the Tosefta in Trumot at the beginning, because this is somebody who we encounter throughout law, and that's a shotet, right? 
because uh, the example from the seventh parak of Gittin, a guy is married and then the guy suddenly starts to lose his marbles and we convince him to give his wife a get before he totally goes off the edge. Uh, and, uh, and as he directs the people to give the get, it, tur it turns out that he's also thinks he's married to Josephine who walks around with his hand in his shirt, right? The get's no good. We have to define. Oh. Like what, what defines somebody as, that was Napoleon. How, how do we define uh, somebody as a shotet? Now, here we go. Ezu shotet, the Tosefton Truon, because in the beginning of Truon, to the Mishnah, it says there's five people, if they take Truon, it doesn't count, right? And one of them is a shotet. A shotet is non-kapas mentis, and anything they do halakhically doesn't count. They make a kinyan doesn't count. They give kiddushin doesn't count. They give a get it doesn't count. They're, they make a nether it doesn't count. Basically, their math is terrible. Nothing they do counts. Right now, Ezu Shotet. That was math, that was a joke. Ezu Shotet. What's a Shotet? A guy walks around alone at night. And by the way, this is very uh, society specific. A guy who sleeps in the boneyard. A guy who tears his clothes. Or somebody who, when you give something to him, he loses it. Now, by the way, each one of these, at the Gemara Chagiga goes through this, and you see in Daf Gimel. And each one of these has a possible explanation that makes him not a shote. It's a chidi balayla. Could be a guy. I mean, today you wouldn't say this. Today everybody goes out to take a walk at night. People go to a friend's house at night. Being alone outside at night is not such a weird thing anymore. In those days, it was. Somebody sleeps in a boneyard. Could be you know, his wife threw him out of the house and he had nowhere to go. Or he's into witchcraft. Doesn't make him crazy. Makes him problematic. You know, maybe over to Rosara, but it doesn't make him crazy. Or are there 100,000 people in Cairo like that? Right, I'm a karek suto, a guy who rips his clothes. Could be a guy who uh, who just in in grief doesn't mean that he's crazy. Hamabed mashinot limlo could be somebody who's absent mind doesn't make him a shota. So the Gemara in Chagiga quotes this in the context of a shota being patur from Riya, and says itmar Ravuna amar kulan Ravuna says all of these indicators have to happen at the same time, meaning a guy has to be doing all these things before we'll call him a shota, because each one of them could be explained separately. If the guy does all of them, we use Occam's razor and say the best explanation for all these things is, is not a local explanation, but the global explanation of the guy's nuts. Now, I want you to see the implications of this machloket. Rabbi Yochanan says any one of these makes him a shota. Rav Huna says you have to have all of them. So now, we've got a guy who goes up to a girl and gives her kiddushin, and uh, and we see him the night before and the next night, etc., walking around alone at night. According to Ravuna, the Kiddushin are valid. He only has one of the signs of a Shotet, which means this girl's an ancient Ish, which means if she has relations with another man, she's Chayab Mita. According to Rabbi Yochanan, the guy's a Shotet because he has one of the signs. She's not married to anybody. If she sleeps with another guy, she slept with another guy. My point being, that their determination about what makes somebody a shotah, and here we now are having a moraim disagreeing about whether you need just any of these indicators or all of the indicators at the same time to classify somebody as a shotah, has again far-reaching uh, implications. And I'm picking the same kind of implications that we're dealing with in our sugya, which are implications of marriage. That you could, you could go to all, other, all sorts of other places. A guy makes a ned there, and he's got one of these simanim. Is the ned valid? But I want to stick to something that's, that's closer to home for what we're doing. Now, all of this brings us to, to our sugya. 
I'm going to skirt this very quickly because we're all familiar with it, which is when the woman's husband goes off on a trip and he doesn't come back, and then one witness comes and says, and we accept this witness's testimony, that's a whole sugya by itself. What kind of witness? What does he say or she say, etc.? And the Beitin says, based on this, that your husband's dead, you can marry. She marries, her husband walks in. What do we say? We said that she both marriages have to be terminated with a get, no tuba, et cetera, et cetera. The part that we care about is this, Havlad, Mamzer, Mizet, Umizet, which means that if she married uh, under the assumption of widowhood and she had kids with the second husband, those kids are Mamzerian, that, by the way, is understandable. She's married to a guy, and now she went and married another guy. But the real kicker is that if she d- ignores what we say, and her first husband, who returned battle-worn, but health, but alive, uh, or just lost and alive, uh, and, and they resume their marriage and have more kids, those kids are mamzer. And the question is, wait, how could those kids be mamzer? This is her husband. And by the way, what's the implication of this? So take a look at what the Gemara says here. And this, is, this, this line is what drives, this should have been the title of the whole thing. This is what really drives the whole series. Do Beitin actually usurp what the Torah says? Right? And this is what I'm calling supersession. Supersession, not in the sense of the church, because that's spelled with a C, anyways. Supersessive means to supersede, meaning this is the most extreme example of rabbinic law. We saw interpretive, we saw applicative, etc. Now we're seeing. There's the evidence for the fact that rabbinic law will supersede Torah law. Why? Take a look here. What happens? This remember started with the truma issue, but not of Vlad Mamzer Mizel Mizeh. Our Mishnah says that both kids are right. Mishnah Mamzer. I understand why the kid she has with that second husband is a Mamzer because she's still married to the first guy. Why if she goes back to her first husband, which we told her not to? But why is that a Mamzer, the kid she has with him. Yisrael Malio, that kid's a perfectly good Yisrael. And what's the problem? Because Sharina Levi Mamzeret, we're now allowing this kid who's a Yisrael to marry a Mamzeret. That's the kicker. We're taking a kid who Midoraita is Yisrael and prohibited from marrying a Mamzeret. We are rabbinically declaring him to be a Mamzer. And the result of that is that he may now marry Mamzeret, which means we're now superseding the law. We're taking a kid who's Israel, Midoraita, Midorabanan calling him a Mamzer, and then therefore he's now permitted to marry Mamzer. So Shmuel solves the problem, which is Shmuel, this is Rav Chista and Rav and Rava, Asurva Mamzer. Shmuel said, no, he can't marry Mamzer, which means we just say he's a Mamzer Lechumra. That by that, by the way, I'm not talking on the personal level, it's a tragedy for the kid, but on a on a, a schematic level. Yeah. It solves the problem because now we're just saying that we're not being, we're not permitting anything. We're not saying this kid who's really Israel may marry a mom. No, he can't marry anybody. So both in Havel and in Eretz Israel, they understood in this case that he's not, he's a mamzer l'chumr, shall we say. So why are we calling him mamzer? Because he also can't marry a regular Jewish girl. Okay. I brought this only as evidence of something which is the driving force behind the series, which is here the rabbis are exercising their mandate in a way that does not interpret an open-ended area of Torah like Perkat HaMazon, 
mm-hmm. or help to determine the reality, which is a Torah issue, like Rove, right? Or, or, or what methods that we use, Chazaka, other kind of determinants. But this is an example where the rabbis are superseding Torah law. And that's what the, what the difficulty is. That's the evidence for it. Now, we know that there are several exceptions where this does not seem to be a problem because we have precedent. One of them, and I'm, I'm going to scope these very quickly. One of them is what we call Hefker Beitin Hefker. And I'm going to, outside of the text, because we did this together over Yom Tov, uh, on, 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 on Shabbat morning, we did this. This is the case where a man marries a katana, and this bill was you're talking before, a katana where the father's dead. So it's Kiddushan Darabanan. And the guy's married to her, and there's a three-way machloket. If, at what point in their relationship, if she dies, will he inherit from her? But all of them, all opinions, but Hill, Machang, Rabbi Lazar, all agree that at some point before she reaches majority, we think, meaning before their marriage becomes a marriage to Araita, if she dies, he inherits from her. And what do we see here? Therefore, money that really belongs to her father's family goes to her husband's family. That's the thing. Me do right that she go to the father's family because me do right that she's not an age of consent. Me banan because of the circumstances we that goes to the husband's family, right? And so where does that come from? And so here we have it as because of the rule of hefker beitin haya hefker. So this is one exception to our problem where rabbinic rule will supersede Torah rule because the baiting can confiscate and expropriate funds and reassign them. Eminent domain. And, but we can't just say that out of nowhere. So where does it come from? What's the source? The source is in Sefer Nechemia, Ezra. This is when they had the big meeting where they all agreed to divorce their foreign wives and they declared anyone who does not come to this big meeting, all of his property will be confiscated. It's basically a a fine that the court has the right to impose on everybody. And you see from this that nobody was raising any hackles about it because nobody's hackles were raised because this is within the rights of the court to confiscate property, to reassign property, to grant property. And therefore, if Beitin says this property that should really go to the girl's father's family is going to go to the girl's putative husband's family, then that's uh, that's that's fine, right? Rabbi Lazar had a different source for Efker Beitin Hefker, and I'm going to spend a few minutes on this. We're going to end with this because there's there's a, a, an interesting nut in this. Rabbi Lazar has a different source for Hefker Beitin Hefker, and that's from the Pasuk in Yoshua. Beginning of Perak Yudalad, which is just before the whole presentation of the borders of each tribe, says these are the territory, the inheritances that were granted by Elazar HaKohen, Yashobinun, that's the leadership, and Rashay Ha'avot. In other words, what you see is you see a gathering of the heads of each of the tribes all together and agreeing how to divide the land. And the Gemara then says, Rabbi Lazar's Russians, why are you calling Rashim and Avot? The answer is just like parents have the right to distribute their estate as they wish among their kids. Similarly, the, uh, the heads of the tribes have the right to do that, which means they can take property that you might think belongs to you and transfer it, Hefker Beitin Hefker. Now, again, it's not such an, ex- such, such an uh, extravagant concept. 
It's one that we even have here. Think about this. If somebody defaults on the taxes, what does the government do? The government garnishes their wages. The government comes in and can seize your assets. So that's not such a, such a foreign idea to us. But here's the interesting thing is what the Yerushalmi does with this. And we will end with this passage from the Yerushalmi. Um, and, uh, and then that's where we'll pick up um, uh, next time. The Mishnah in Masachat Peah tells us the following. The short version is that, remember, we just had, had Shavuot. We just read Megillat Ruth. And Megillat Ruth is driven by a mitzvah called Leket, which is the rights of the poor to come into the field and collect uh, fallen stalks uh, of, uh, of grain that the harvesters dropped. Let's say that you had a pile, uh, you piled your wheat on top of an area where the poor didn't get a chance to get there, which means now they can't get there. You kind of blocked them off. So we said, anything that's touched on the ground that belongs to the anim. Right? And so the Gemara here, the Rishami says, uh, identifies what's happening, and the result of it is says, knas kansu bo. There's a fine here, meaning, you made a pile on top of what the anim were supposed to get. And before they got there, you made a pile, which made it inaccessible. We're fining you. You know how we're fining you? We're taking everything that's on the ground and giving it to the anim. Okay, that's Hefker Beitin Hefker, isn't it? It's a regular fine. You tried to, to cheat the anim out of their due, right? You're going to be fined more. I'm down with that. Here's the problem we have. When I take fruit, we dealt with this a lot over the last few days. When I take fruit that I'm a farmer and I take that yield into my hat, into my granary, what do I have to do with it? I bring it into the granary, I process it, what do I have to do? Truma. I have to separate trumot and masrot. And before I do that, I can't eat it, right? It's teva. What's the law about leket and peya and shikha and all of those gifts to the anim? They're exempt from maaser. I want you to see now the implications of Hefker, Beitin, Hefker. Beitin is saying, we are fining you, the farmer, for trying to cheat the, the, the uh, anim out of Leket. We're going to take food that isn't Leket, which means it's Chayav and Masrot. And what are we going to do? We're going to give it to the anim and exempt it from Masrot. Mm. The reason I want to show you this is that even in the seemingly harmless, quote-unquote, area of Hefker, Beitin, Hefker, which doesn't seem to violate any ritual principles that we can think of. It's essentially the government reassigning property, the court reassigning property. Even there, we have a ritual problem, which is you've taken fruit that needs maaser, and Beitin has decided it doesn't need maaser. Big thing. And you see that the Yushalmi here deals with it and invokes the principle in, the, in many of the Kitveyad the word is not hefker, but hefker. Shevker, beitin, hefker. And now what's the source? The pasuk in masrot. But again, how can you exempt it from masrot? Right? So now, says, I'll give you a precedent for it. It's great. Let me ask you, what year is it, what year are we now uh, towards the tail end of? Shemitah. Now, in Shemitah, is there any Trumot Masrot? No. Negative, because there's no owners. All right? Now, if I could arbitrarily extend Shemitah, then I would have another month where there'd be no Trumot Masrot. Meaning, watch, here we go. Ein ma'brina tashana lo 
The rule is that Beitin, and we didn't do this here, Beitin does not add a month, make a Shanamu Barrett during Shemitah or the eighth year. Right? But if they don't listen to us, or for some reason they need to, it is Uberit. Like this year, we had 13 months. Now, well, look what happened. Beitin sat together in February and decided, you know what, winter's coming too soon, we're adding a month. Which means, in the summer, there's now a whole month of food that should take Masrot, that because of what Beitin did, don't take Masrot. Do you understand how far-reaching the rabbinic power is? The rabbis decide when to make the new month, and the implication of that is that now there's a whole month of fruit that should need masrot that doesn't need masrot. By the way, besides that, it also means that if you eat on a particular day, you have karet, and really, without the rabbis' interference, it would have been a month earlier. But that's easy, because all holidays and all calendar has to be determined somehow. But here, we're having the rabbis add a month, which means they're giving a whole extra month of no trumot and masrot, which means midoraita, this stuff should need trumot and masrot, but because of their intervention, it doesn't. So you understand why there is a particular difficulty in here. And so I wanted to show you that because you see that the Yerushalmi even takes Hefker, Beitin Hefker, and takes it to a more problematic layer, because on, on simply to us, Hefker, Beitin Hefker is not that troubling. But when you add in the implications here of the extra month, suddenly it becomes troubling. Yeah, sure, when you want to ask? No, I was, I was going to make the, the quip that the Levine would, would, should go on a strike about this, right? Shevet Levi should go on a strike. Yeah, the Levine are among the poor, so I don't think they go on a strike. <laughs> All right, the last thing I want to hit right now is, um, is the following. Um, there's one other area uh, where supersession is, is fine that we've seen, and that is exigent circumstances. One famous example. Now, exigent circumstances breaks into two modes. One of them is uh, emergency relief, and one of them is changed circumstances. I'll explain what I mean. And I'll do this outside of the text. The first text we're dealing with is the famous passage, which is both in the sixth paragraph, in the fifth paragraph of Yitten, and also in Masachat Murah about the prohibition of writing down halachot, or what we call writing down Torshval Peh, and then that being lifted, and the question is lifted permanently or not. The question is whether there really was such a prohibition. That's another diun. But with the assumption of there being a prohibition to write down Torshval Peh, that being lifted because of what we call eight lasot lashem, pasuk in tilim kufiotet, and the reasoning being mutad te'aker Torah v'yaltishdakach Torah Israel. Better to uproot one law in the Torah so that the entire Torah is not forgotten. In other words, in order to save the day, we need to actually uproot something from the Torah. And this is a rabbinic decision to say there's a law that we see as a law of the Torah. We're going to uproot that law in order to save the larger picture. You see it also here, famously, and we saw this in our Gemara, but you see it here from the Sifri, which is the mitzvah to listen to a Navi means even when he tells you to violate the law, and what's the famous example of that? Eliyahu on Har Carmel. When he builds a Mizbeach on Har Carmel. That, of course, is only the Fisha'a. That's only a temporary thing, not a permanent change in the law. Right? And we saw that in our Gemara. And the one the last example I want to bring about of this is the following. Very famous thing. This is so famous it could make it to jeopardy, certainly with my Bialikon. And that is, what are the three laws that you have to, uh, uh, quote unquote, martyr yourself? By the way, what is a martyr? I just as fun. What does the word martyr mean? 
So martyr is a Greek word which actually means witness. Right? The Ohel Moed is called skene de, uh, and, and martyriu. Skene martyriu. Martyriu of, of, of testimony. Uh, a martyr was somebody, who, Christian, who died and their death was testimony to the truth of their belief. Right? So we borrowed the word and uh, we use a better word which is called kedoshin. But in any case, uh, famously, there's the passage in Sanhedrin, it's also in in uh in Ketubot, so in an, an, an attic in Lod, which means they were hiding from the Romans when they said this, they took a vote and determined. Now, I want you to see what that means. They took a vote and determined, which means there were different voices, and they finally settled on this conclusion. For all laws in the Torah, if you are told violate the law and don't be killed. You're supposed to violate the law and not be killed. Except for the three famous exceptions. Now, what does that mean? What was happening that they had to make this law? What was happening simply seems to be that people were dying as opposed to eating chazit. Dying as opposed to wearing shotness. Meaning people were sanctifying their Judaism, if you will, becoming Kedoshim, rather than violate any law. Because notice the, the, the wording. The wording is not that they said, no, you can't save your law by or you save your life by doing a Razar. It's the opposite. You can't give up your life for the mitzvah, except for three. Right? Now, notice here we're talking about the most powerful thing, which is life and death. And we're saying life and death, what you give your life for, what things you violate, we're telling you, eat Chazer and don't die. And this is not eat chazer because you're starving and the doctor said, if you don't eat chazer, you won't get the proper. It's talking about like somebody who's standing over you and said, you either eat this chazer or I'll kill you. Say, okay, I'll eat the chazer. You're commanded to do that. So Ramam Tosfot, are you even allowed to, to try to go beyond? Okay. And now watch this, it gets better. Ki Ravdimi, Ravdimi came from Eretz Israel. He quotes Rav Yochanan saying, This is only true, meaning this limitation of three things is only true when it's not a time of persecution. When it is a time of persecution, even a light mitzvah, you should sacrifice your life. And then there's another piece. We have another part from Yochanan. Even when it's not a time of persecution, this is only true when it is private. If it's out in front of other people, you should give your life even for a light mitzvah. Now, what does that mean? Um, uh, that means that, um, that we are now limiting, the rabbis are limiting and saying, in certain circumstances, you have to give your life up. You give your life up, we're saying, in order to protect the Torah. And take a look at the, the Ramah here explains the following. Ramah is Ramosha Halevi Abulafia. In other words, if it's a time of persecution, suddenly all the stakes are higher and you have to sacrifice your life rather than violate even something small because there's Kiddush Hashem involved. The two, plus another reason, because if you don't, it's going to slippery slope. People are going to say, oh, you know, I see that save your life, you could do this, and it's going to be the end of things. 
שלא יגילו העקום להמריך את הלבבות בכך. Or, we don't want the goyim to suddenly become accustomed to try to break our spirit by doing this. In other words, watch what happens. The rabbis step in and talk about the most grievous thing possible, which is giving your life up and saying, here are the boundaries. You give your life up not to do You give your life up even for a light mitzvah if it's a time of persecution. Why? Because otherwise the consequences are going to be terrible. You give your life up even not a time of persecution if the challenge is public because it's going to uh, inspire everybody to be stronger in their commitment and if you don't give your life up, it's going to weaken the morale. Now, you notice here that the Chachamim are making determinations about life and death, not just determining this really is that kid's son and therefore he's Chayab Mitah for striking that man who we determine as his father. We're talking about telling you to give your life up or to not give your life up and to violate a mitzvah. I'm showing you this because I want you to see how very, um, how very uh, deeply the needle sticks in of rabbinic legislation into Torah law. And that's what we have to deal with next time, which is going to take us, we're going to start just by quickly doing Sheva Al-Taseh, and then we're going to get into the real uh, core sugya of this whole thing, which is the sugya of Hafka'at Kiddushin. And that we'll have to wait for next week. But in the meantime, this is our start of the sugya of Kocham Shel Rabbanan.